Good morning again. My name is Kevin Newsom. I am the Associate Pastor of Worship and Discipleship here today. Uh, pastor Craig, or Craig Thompson, our senior pastor, is out spending some time with family. Uh, um, our student pastor, Adam Whiteside, who normally does the announcements, has had surgery on Friday, uh, knee surgery. Uh, you've met our uh, senior adult pastor, Buster, this morning, who read our scripture. And you also met our chairman of deacons, Brian Garbade, who I thought was about to preach my sermon. Turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, and while you're doing that, uh, um, you use your table of contents. That's what Craig told you to do, but uh, it's the third week in Jonah. You should know where it is by now. Uh, while you're doing that, I want to just uh, tell everybody thank you for all the hard work that you did <clears throat> for our fall festival, all the volunteers uh, that came out and worked despite the weather. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we do registration so that we, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one of those is so that we can try to get an estimate about how many people that we have the opportunity to minister to as they come through our, our, um, our, our church. Um, and the estimate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,400 people came through uh, according to the registrations. So, there you go. Good job, Malvern Hill and all volunteers. Thank you so much for that. By now, you should be uh, chapter 3, Jonah, and if you will, if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? It's only 10 verses, so I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for just this testimony that we find in Jonah of a man who uh, ran, ran from you, but uh, you guys' attention, and he turned and followed you and uh, did what you told him to do. God, I just pray that you would speak to us through that, through, speak to us through the Scripture. God, use, use me in these preparations that I've made uh, to speak your word to these people here today. God, and I pray that you would open all our hearts to hear it. In the name I pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're in the middle of football season, and so I've got a football story for you. On New Year's Day, 1929, Georgia Tech played the University of California in the Rose Bowl. In that game, a man named Roy Regals recovered a fumble for California. Somehow, he became confused, hit a few people, got turned around, and started running the wrong direction, 65 yards uh, to the opponent's uh, goal line. One of his teammates chased him down and tackled him just before he scored for the opposing team. When California attempted to punt, afterwards Georgia Tech blocked a kick and scored a safety, uh, which proved later to be the margin of victory for Georgia Tech. 
That strange play came in, the full, uh, came in the first half, and everyone was asking the same question, what will Coach Price do with Roy Regals in the second half? During halftime, Regals put a blanket around his shoulders. He sat on the bench in the locker room, and he wept like a baby. Coach was quiet. No speech, no instructions, no encouragement, nothing. He just sat there the entire halftime quietly in front of his team. No doubt he was trying to decide what to do with Regals. When it was finally time to begin the second half, Coach Price looked at the team and said simply, men, the same team that played the first half will play the second half. So the players got up. He started out all but Regals. Coach Price went over to where he was sitting and said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same team that played the first half will play the second half. Then Regals looked up and said, Coach, I can't do it to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. Then Coach Price put a hand on his shoulder and said, Roy, get up. Go on back. The game is only half over. Though they lost that game, Roy Regals played harder than anyone else on that team during the second half. He would go on to become the captain of that team and an All-American his senior year. Over the years, he used his experience to reach out and to encourage other players, high school, college, and professional, who had made similar blunders. And in 1991, he was inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. He could have given up. His coach could have given up. His team could have given up on him. But beyond all odds, he was given this second chance. And he took that second chance and he made something good out of it. One of the main themes that flows through the book of Jonah is this, this theme of second chances. We see this theme most clearly in chapter 3. And I'm, that's what I'm going to be talking about today. This idea of second chances, it, it rings loudly in all our lives because at one point or another, everyone, every one of us in this room, you've either received a second chance or you're going to need one. So when it comes to the issue of second chances, we should all understand just how important that is. So before we get to the sermon, I want to say now that I know that there, there may be some of you in here that are desperately longing and you desperately want a second chance. You've run the wrong way. You've cost your team the game. You've been sitting in the locker room weeping over what you've done. And maybe you think that everyone has given up on you and that you're out of the game. But I want you to know right now before we even start, right up front this morning, that God is a God of second chances. The game's not over yet. And he hasn't given up on you. First point this morning, God gives second chances. Let's talk about that a little bit more in depth. The book of Jonah is symmetrical. Okay, so when we look at chapters 3 and 4, we can see that they, they are a reflection of chapters 1 and 2. So here in chapter 3, we begin, basically, we're, we're starting over the book of Jonah. Okay? In chapters 1 and 2, chapter 1, we see God, uh, Jonah runs from God. And in uh, uh, chapter 3, Jonah obeys God. It's symmetrical. In chapter 2, Jonah cries out to God in despair. In chapter 4, which Pastor Craig will preach next Sunday, uh, we see Jonah is crying out to God in frustration. So when we begin chapter 3, I, I want you to see that, that, that in the actual structure of the book, 
in the way the book is written and designed, and in Jonah's calling, and in the theme of the book, all of these things, we are starting over. It starts over right here. In fact, verse 2 of both chapter 1 and chapter 3 are almost identical. If you look at at, at, uh, that verse in chapter 1, it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come. Uh, before me. And, and in, in chapter 3, verse 2, 1 and 2, it's the same thing. Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I will tell you. It's almost identical, except for just a few, uh, few little word differences. Let it sink in a moment. Let it sink in that Jonah, after, after Jonah has run from God, after he has been corrected by God, after he has been placed back on the right path, the path he should have been on to begin with. God simply, look what he does. He just repeats his instructions. He just repeats himself as if nothing has happened. God not only gave Jonah a second chance, he's given him a clean slate. It's as if he's saying, you know what, Jonah, let's just start over. Let's just start over right here. God gave Jonah this fresh start. He didn't beat Jonah up. He didn't say, all right, now just don't, do, don't go running again. Didn't, he didn't do any of that. He didn't give him a chaperone to make sure that he did what he was supposed to do. He didn't take away his job. He didn't take away his identity. What was done was done. It was over. It was in the past. God still believes in Jonah, still wants to use Jonah. So now that whole running fiasco, everything is over. Everything's said and done. And God wipes the slate clean. He simply starts over. This idea of forgiveness can sometimes be a little hard for us to understand. The Bible tells us that when we are forgiven, our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. God remembers it no more. His forgiveness is so complete that we never have to fear that God will suddenly recall what we did and punish us for it again. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will, re- I will not remember your sins. And Hebrews 8, 12 says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, to make sure we understand the Scriptures properly, okay, we have to take our Scriptures as a whole, and we see in passages like Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and Revelation chapter 20, we get this picture, we get this picture that at some point God is going to, uh, review our lives and, and sort of uh, create this uh, a judgment scenario even for believers uh, in order to reward our lives accordingly for the things that we've done. And so we, we sort of get this, this idea, okay, does he forget our sins or is he going to bring them back up and judge us for them later for rewards? So we got to talk about that for just a second. I don't think it can be uh, fairly say that an omnipotent God is incapable of remembering, Okay. Remember that word, incapable. We can't say God is incapable of anything. Do, do, let, me just, let me just warn you right here. Don't ever say that God will always or God will never. Okay, because as soon as you do that, God's going to prove you wrong. What we have is a promise from God that he will not recall our sins in any way that would not be beneficial for us. Okay. In other words, the condemnation for our sins is paid. 
It's paid by Jesus. There is no judgment. There is no punishment for those who are forgiven in Christ. And God can and God will use our past mistakes in ways that grow us, in ways that benefit us according to his love and generosity. You see, even when we mess up, even when we sin, we only stand in the anger and condemnation of God so long as we remain unrepentant. But once forgiveness has taken hold, even our sins can be used by God to bring blessings into our lives. He no longer will see a transgression in need of punishment. You catch that? He may see something that's been redeemed something that he can use, something he can bless. But he doesn't see it as a sin because the sin has been forgiven. He sees instead that sanctification of our lives through the blood of Jesus. There are a lot of us here today that need to hear that. Maybe you've been living under the condemnation of, of, of a sin that you've committed. You think there's no way God could forgive you, much less forget it or use it for some good thing. But it's not a question of what God will or won't do. It's more of a question of whether or not you believe God's promises. The great thing about God's promises is that He doesn't require us to believe them for them to be true. There are no requirements on our part. And this reminds me of Abraham, when God made the covenant with Abraham. If you study the passage of Scripture, when, uh, that moment when God made that covenant with Abraham, you will notice that God is the one that does all the requirements for that covenant and tells Abraham just to watch. Abraham doesn't participate. It's because God's promises aren't dependent on us. God's promises aren't dependent on anything that we could do. God promises it, and it is so no matter how we feel or what we do. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because he has promised he would forgive us our sins if we call upon him. He has also promised to redeem our mistakes for good and to remember them as sin no more. And these promises are true whether we feel like it or not, whether you believe those promises or not, because they don't depend on you. Isn't that great? They don't depend on us. Our God is faithful to remember His promises with or without us. He can and He will give you a second chance. And when he does, when you've repented from running from him, this is what he, he wipes the slate clean and he starts over. He starts over. Do you need that kind of second chance today? Do you need that clean slate? You can have it. Second this morning, God's forgiveness is for everyone. With Jonah's clean slate, he did what he was told to do. He didn't argue. He rededicated himself to his calling and to his obedience to God, and he went to Nineveh without complaint. 
And the Bible tells us that Nineveh was a great city. It was the capital of Assyria. It was also the center of culture and the center of commerce uh, and the center of the military strength of this entire nation because it was the capital. They were an exceedingly cruel people, okay, known to torture prisoners, torture foreigners, and, and to uh, conduct gruesome human sacrifices, all right? And Jonah's message was simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It took him three days across the city. Three days. If he were to walk from one point A to point B across the city um, without stopping. And he, he, he went around preaching this message to that entire city. Let me give you, give you a, an idea of just how big this city was, all right? Historians verify, or, or historians confirm for us, the size of this city. And they say that uh, historical Nineveh had a circumference of 60 miles. If you drew a circle around it, that circle would take 60 miles to go all the way around it. By comparison, we actually have a really great comparison. If you, if you look at Charlotte, I-485, which circles Charlotte, if you were to drive that from point A to point B all the way around, you would travel 67 miles. Nineveh was roughly the size of the Charlotte area within I-485. Despite the simplicity of Jonah's message, the people immediately believed him and began to repent. Jonah didn't have to do much. You know, I think about the, um, the, uh, the VeggieTales. We've had to talk about the VeggieTales. I'm sorry. Deanna says, every time Pastor Craig gets up here and says Jonah was a prophet, she starts singing the song in her head from VeggieTales from that Jonah movie. But in that Jonah movie, <laughs> when Jonah gets to Nineveh and they ask him, what's your message? Here's what the message was. It's even more simple what they put about. His message was, stop it! And they go on to explain in that, that little cartoon that the king was very distraught because nobody had ever told him he wasn't supposed to do that stuff before. Nobody had ever told him. Word reached the king. And the king proclaimed mandatory repentance for the entire nation. And what that means is the king not only joined with the repentance, but he instituted mandatory changes in the daily habits and rituals and policies of Assyria. He changed the course of the entire nation, all because of a simple message from Jonah, something he may have never realized he was supposed to know. Maybe he didn't know. It tells us two things, this simple message. Forty days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Tells us two things. First, it tells us that the Spirit of God had gone before Jonah to prepare the hearts of the people to recognize their own sin. God was in Nineveh long before Jonah was. Second, that there was an instinct of objective morality in the people that existed in their hearts, which gave them the ability to recognize their own sin once the Spirit of God prepared them to do so. But they still needed somebody to point it out because they didn't understand what it was. Nobody had ever told them before. Nobody had ever told them before. They didn't repent before Jonah came. Despite God's preparation, they needed that push. 
they needed that light bulb moment for it to click. There's a um, really fun music competition show that our family enjoys watching, and Wednesday nights, we usually we can get home in time after church, at least watch the last half of it, called The Masked Singer. Has anybody ever watched this before? So it's, it's, it's absolutely the most, one of the most ridiculous things they've ever come up with. These celebrities dress up in the most ridiculous costumes, and there's absolutely no way to know who they are. And look, look, there is presidential-level security around this show. The, the celebrities that come in in, in in limousines and tinted windows, and they have handlers, and they have masks they wear anytime they go anywhere on, uh, behind stage. They're not, nobody, not even the crew is allowed to to see them. The only people that are allowed to know who they are are the actual handlers and the producers of the show. Nobody knows. Not even the other contestants. We have fun with it because we're a musical family. We like different kinds of music and everything, and, and usually we're pretty good at it. So what they do is they'll show, they sh- they show a, a pre-thing with a bunch of clues of who they are. They're disguising their voices so that you can't tell who, they're, who they are by their voice. And then they'll get out on stage and then they'll sing with their normal voice in a ridiculous costume. Okay? And then they got four judges that are up there. They're trying to piece it together who that person might be. And they make a guess at the end of the show. Uh, there's a vote that happens and the one with the least amount of vo- votes have to take off their mask. And we get to see who was right and who was wrong. We're usually pretty good at it. This, um, this season, we, we think we've pegged down pretty much everybody. But there was one that they revealed last week. Uh, it was a skeleton. He's this big, giant skeleton head and top hat and tuxedo. And, and we're like, this, who, we, we should know who this is. This singing voice sounds familiar. The clues feel familiar. We should know who this is. And we just couldn't quite put it together. And it was frustrating us. Then one of the judges said, I think it's Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer is the musician who used to be with uh, David Letterman for many, many years. And the moment that judge said that name, click, she's right. That's exactly who it is. Sure enough, when he took off the mask, it was Paul Schaefer. We needed that nudge. We needed that light bulb moment. We had everything we needed except for just just one little thing, okay? The people of Jonah had everything they needed. They had all of it. The Spirit was working on them. I'm sure that they had heard, uh, because they had had dealings with Israel, they had heard about the God of the Israelites. There was conviction There was built-in morality. They knew something wasn't right. But they didn't quite know what. They needed that nudge, that push. And once they got it, it clicked. And they all repented, even the king. We tend to think the worst of people. How often do we forget God's ability to go before us, to work on the hearts of sinful people who may not know there's another way? They may not know. 
And maybe we, we need to bring to the surface their, that, that built-in recognition of their objective morality and truth. And, and if, we say, if we say what God has told us to say, maybe they just need a click. They need a light bulb moment because they know something's wrong. They know it. They can feel it, but they don't know what. And they just need someone to come along and give them the answer. The people of Nineveh had everything but the answer. When Jonah came along and filled in the blank, they immediately repented. Church, sometimes all God needs us to do is to be the ones to go fill in the blank. Because God is not only in the business of giving you a second chance, but his desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The same God who showed you mercy and saved you, the same God that gave you a second chance when you messed up, wants to do the same thing to everyone in the world. There is no one too far gone or too messed up that God doesn't love them and want to save them. And don't miss this. Don't miss that the people of Nineveh were not Israelites. They weren't. They didn't look like Jews. They didn't act like Jews. And God loved them anyway. Church, it doesn't matter if someone doesn't look like us, act like us, believe like us, whether they've made big mistakes or live a lifestyle that we don't think is compatible with church culture. It doesn't matter who they are or where they come from. God loves them. He wants to save them. He's doing everything he can to reach them. Church, it's not in our authority to pick and choose who God wants to save. It's not in our authority to tell God who he can and cannot love. The only authority we have is that which is given to us by God. And God wants us to go out to the highways and byways, to the outcasts and the vagabonds and the destitute. And he wants him to come into his house and eat at his table. And we're the ones that are supposed to invite them. There are people out there in need of a second chance, desperately, and a clean slate. And it's our responsibility to go tell them that through the blood of Jesus, they can have it. And it might just be those few words that creates that light bulb moment for them. And it clicks. And suddenly, they understand their sin, and they understand their need for a Savior. Thirdly this morning, don't test God's graciousness. Eventually, God's mercy ran out. Jonah's message and Nineveh's repentance occurred somewhere around 775 B.C. Now, I'm going to to talk some dates and a little bit of history here. Uh, Just bear with me. Um, Though Assyria was a dominant world power and a nemesis of Israel, historians confirm that uh, that roughly coinciding with Jonah's message, all right? So the historians aren't going to say Jonah's true. But roughly coinciding the time of Jonah's message, we have a 30-year decline in Assyria. Their economy drops, probably because they were a country that was built on war. They were no longer conquering. 
They were no longer doing the things that made Assyria great. They kept to themselves. They were not a military power anymore. The world no longer feared them. Roughly coinciding with Jonah's message for 30 years, it seems, about the space of a generation, it seems that Assyria heeded the words of Jonah. For 30 years, Nineveh and Assyria lived quietly in the world, but in 745, Tiglath-Pileser III became king, and a new generation who had not repented took over. How long does it take to forget God's promises? A generation. A generation. The new Assyria resumed their old policies. They began to conquer and destroy the nations again. They uh, quickly resumed their place as the most feared and powerful nation in the world. In 740, Tiglath-Pileser led the Syrian forces to begin conquering and deporting Jews from the northern kingdom of Israel. By 722, the northern kingdom was no more. The prophets Isaiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah all prophesied against Assyria and its capital Nineveh after Jonah. Nahum's message was both uh, to Jews in captivity and to the Syrians. Almost, Nahum is almost considered a sequel to the book of Jonah. There's some thought that maybe Nahum the prophet was living, may have been living in Nineveh. And he wrote his message as an encouragement to the Jews that were there that had been deported and to the Ninevites who were living there. He wrote this in chapter 3, Nahum chapter 3. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all, will see, all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? In 627, civil war ravaged Assyria, and the country's enemies saw their chance. Assyria began to endure numerous assaults over the years, and at last Nineveh fell in 612. For a time, Nineveh and Assyria had repented. But eventually their sin took back over and they resumed their old ways. Still, God sent warnings. He sent more warnings back to Assyria, eventually sending Nahum to prophesy against them directly. But this time, this time they didn't listen. This time they didn't repent. They ignored the warnings. They ignored God to to their destruction 163 years after Jonah. Nineveh was gone. We cannot have a discussion about God's mercy and God's second chances without also discussing God's wrath and God's justice. We all deserve destruction for our sins. We don't deserve second chances, but through Jesus, he has seen fit to give us mercy. What we deserve is God's wrath. He is justified in giving it to us because we, uh, who we are, uh, because who are we to stand before God's holiness? In Scotland a year ago, Ian Leach, one of the founders of Herald's Trust, is the organization we partner with to do mission work in Scotland, told us this story. 
tells a story about uh, uh, um, a time he was in the classroom. He was teaching on the problem of evil, and a student challenged him about the problem of evil and said he couldn't understand why God didn't just wipe out all evil in the world. Why couldn't he just snap his fingers and all evil be gone? And so he begins to talk with the student about it and talk back and forth about it. And he said, look, if, if, uh, if, if you could get God to agree at midnight tonight, just like that, all evil in the world would be gone. Would that be okay with you? Midnight tonight. Would you be okay with that? And the student said, yes, of course. Of course I would. And then he asked me this question. Well, then tell me this. At 12.01, where will you be? This is why we need mercy. We are all sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve to be destroyed. Without mercy, we have no hope. And thankfully, God's patience far exceeds our own. He is patient with us time after time. As our Father, He corrects us into righteousness. And He understands we're working with the deck stacked against us. He understands that for a time, we still have to contend with the sinful flesh. It doesn't matter how much we mess up. I want you to know that God will never stop loving you. And he will never stop giving us second chances unless, unless we become so comfortable with his mercy that we no longer respect and value his grace. And we no longer fear his justice and his wrath. We no longer remember that we deserve destruction. God's patience and mercy are endless, but neither are we to test those boundaries. He sees the truth of our hearts. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. You no longer fear God, and His wrath is sure to come. There's a difference between the person who habitually sins out of disrespect for God and without fear of God, and the person who genuinely fears and loves God but uh, may still struggle with sin. The difference is simply this. One is a child of God and one isn't. As a child of God, we need not fear the wrath of God as an unbeliever would fear the wrath of God because we have an unshakable hope. He chastises us because he loves us. He corrects us to make us more holy, but the unbeliever will incur the full wrath and destruction and justice of God, not the chastisement of a father to a child. The unbeliever has no hope. I don't think for a moment that someone who has fallen in love with Jesus Christ would ever run the risk of seeing God's patience run out. Which is why this warning goes primarily out to two groups of people who might be here today. First, maybe you believe yourself a Christian, but you've never taken your faith seriously. You've never taken the promises of God seriously. And you've never taken God's wrath seriously. Maybe you believe that your salvation experience bought you a free pass to sin however you want, so long as you ask forgiveness afterwards. That's a dangerous game to play, Christian. It's a dangerous game to play. And if you're playing that kind of game with God's forgiveness, you need to stop it. Stop it before God does something drastic to wake you up. 
On the other hand, on the other hand, when I fell in love with my wife, I gave her my heart. Those of you who are in love with your spouses, hopefully that's all of you who are married, know what I'm talking about, right? Giving your heart to Christ should be an indication that you fell in love with Christ. For some who are living in unrepentant habitual sin, it may be time to consider that if you're not in love with Christ, maybe you never gave your heart to Christ. Second group this uh, warning uh, from Scripture should go to this morning are those who have never given their lives to Jesus Christ, and they believe they have plenty of time. We don't know how much time we have. We could have days, weeks, years, but perhaps today. Maybe it's today, leaving this place on your way home. Your time will come to an end. If you knew that that was about to happen today as you left this place, would you still believe that you had plenty of time? Don't test the limits of God's patience. The people in Nineveh found out that if you disrespect God's patience and God's mercy and God's grace, eventually God's wrath will fall. Fyodor Dostoyevsky. I'm going to mess that name up. I'm just going to warn you right now. It doesn't feel good on my tongue. Fyodor Dostoyevsky is one of the greatest novelists of all time. He describes an experience when he was 27 as a turning point in his life. He had joined a revolutionary liberation group and as a result was arrested in April 1849, placed in a maximum security prison. For eight months, Dostoevsky and his fellow prisoners were questioned and kept, a hor- kept in horrible prison conditions. In October, the prisoners were removed from their cells and led to waiting carriages. When the carriages stopped, the prisoners were led into a square and lined up. The, man, the men were sentenced to be shot. They were given a cross to kiss. They were given a chance to confess to a priest, and then they were dressed in peasants' shirts and hoods for the execution. The first three men in line were led to some stakes. They were tied up, and the soldiers took aim and held their positions. Then from nowhere, a messenger from the czar rode in on a horse with a pardon for Dostoevsky and his fellow prisoners. In a letter to his brother, Dostoevsky described a new outlook towards life. This is what he said. He said, when I look back on my past and think how much time I wasted on nothing, How much time has been lost in futilities, errors, laziness, incapacity to live. How little I appreciated it. How many times I sin against my heart and soul. Then my heart bleeds. Life is a gift. Life is happiness. Every minute can be an eternity of happiness. I want you to know this morning that life without Jesus is futility. Filled with error. Life without Jesus has the incapacity to truly live. 
We are condemned for our rebellion against God. And we face certain destruction. But Jesus comes in, not just with a pardon, but with a declaration that he has already served our punishment. And he has already received the execution. And the pardon extends to all who would accept it. And you think of that moment, that mo moment before the firing squad when the messenger came in. If that's you, sinner. If that's you, sinner. And that was Jesus riding in. What would you do? Unfortunately. Fortunately, many will follow Jesus into forgiveness. They'll get their second chance at life. But unfortunately, many more will turn away. Imagine telling that messenger, you know what, no thanks. No thanks. They would prefer to face the fire squad. It's no accident that you're here today. Two weeks ago, Pastor Craig preached from Jonah chapter 1 that you can't stop the grace and mercy of God no matter how hard you try. Last week, Pastor Craig preached that no one is too far gone that they can't be delivered. And today the message is clear. You can have a second chance if you want it. You can finally have hope. Christian, maybe you've messed up. And you're desperately seeking a clean slate. Maybe through the course of this sermon, you've realized that you've taken God's second chances for granted. And it's time you took your faith in God seriously again. Maybe you're here today because there is a measure of moral conviction that brought you here. And you've been looking for that light bulb moment to point you to the answer. This is it. The answer is Jesus. Whatever your reason for a second chance, whatever your need for a clean slate, you can have it if you come to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just thank you so much for the love that you show us, God. This wonderful, merciful love and how wonderfully patient you are. And God, we look at our lives and we know that, uh, know just how much we deserve to be destroyed. Time after time again, God, you show us forgiveness. And God, I pray now that if there's anybody in here that needs that second chance, God, that they would reach out, they would cry out to you, that they would repent and that they, they would claim it. God, that they might know the reality of your mercy today. And God, if there's anybody here that's been taking all that for granted and living however they wanted to without any fear, I pray that you would break them of that. Show them just how wonderful forgiveness can be and how wonderful it is to have hope. In the name I pray. Amen. Would you